The Evolve Network is now live at evolvenetwork.tv. Subscribe for meal plans, recipes, cooking shows, and our very own The Magic Pill and The Magic Plant, as well as access to my favourite documentaries. The Evolve Network is also home to our full library of podcasts, with new release podcasts airing first and in full on the channel. You can also watch selected vodcasts in a video format. Meanwhile, enjoy this highlight of our podcast and head over to evolvenetwork.tv for the full Evolve podcast experience. The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great-tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, brother? Excellent. Good to see you, Pete. And nice to talk to an Aussie down under. It's always, I love, I love talking to Aussies. I feel there's like a weird hindered spirit between um, the sort of ex-colonies in the Southern Hemisphere. There's a t- totally different energy and a vibe between people that live in the Southern Hemisphere and people that live in the Northern Hemisphere. I don't know what it is, but it's definitely there and it's tangible. You could do a book on that, what a, a, new, a new investigation. And I, I do want to thank you because I know you're a busy man and this is a true gift to be able to spend a little bit of time with you and for our viewers and listeners, I think they're going to get a lot out of this. And you are an expert or you've spent a lot of time researching our ancient past and I can't, I've, I've been diving in, my wife and I have been diving into so many documentaries recently and TV series about ancient civilizations. And the more, I'm, the more I watch or the more we watch, the more I am certain, and it's, it's not, a, it's not, there's no doubt there, but I am certain that we have the solutions for what we're experiencing now, our disconnection, from what we can learn from our ancient civilizations as far as solutions go. And I'd love to talk to you about solutions for 2021 and onwards because my interp- my perception is that we are so disconnected from all the major elements of life that 
can fulfill us for long-term sustainable and regenerative health. So I just want to hand it over to you with that, with that premise, my friend, and uh, for you to take us on the journey from ancient into now into the future and what is possible. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Um, it's definitely uh, true what you said, um, how you opened this discussion up. I feel exactly the same way. I feel I have learned so much about the world, who we are as humanity, about nature around us from studying the past and also even the cosmos, the, the universe, the cosmos and, and the nature around us. Um, it, it sounds really crazy, but the more I study the past and discover um, mysterious tools, artifacts, ancient ruins and delve into the ancient civilizations that are, that are completely vanished and gone, um, I find I'm, I'm, I'm making discoveries that I never expected I would make 20 years ago. And that is, for me, the, the greatest uh, pleasure and gift and a surprise at the same time. Uh, what, what I've learned from uncovering and finding the vanished civilizations of Southern Africa, and I'll stick to that, to that subject here first, because there's obviously ancient civilizations all over the world, Australia has got its own incredible ancient history that that people don't know about and very few people are even prepared to talk about. Uh, and the whole world, no matter which country or which continent you go to, there are hidden ruins, hidden ancient civilizations that have completely vanished. And we see that in the constant discoveries that go on. Isn't that the incredible thing that or every day, every week, every year, we find more and more discoveries of ancient civilizations. When is that going to end? You know, really? Is it, surely we should have discovered everything by now. We think we're so smart. We think we're the pinnacle of civilization. We're, we're living now. This is it. Because we're living now, we must be smarter than people in the past because they must have been stupid cavemen living in caves and just somehow surviving and, and killing each other. Who knows what? But different people have different opinions about the past and past civilizations, especially when you go sort of beyond the Greeks, beyond the Sumerians, and then and then what? Prior to the Sumerians, what was there? Just chaos and people living in caves. I'm not quite sure how the, the average population perceives that. But when you go beyond that, when you go beyond the Sumerians and you start to really look at the, the incredible structures and the ruins that have been left behind that, that date back to 30,000 years and 100,000 years and beyond. And you start recognizing the technology that those civilizations had. Everything changes. Now, I've been fortunate here, right here in South Africa, to have stumbled upon what I guess one could call the, the potluck of, of um, ancient civilizations. This is like the, the largest concentration of ancient ruins found anywhere on earth that has been lying under our feet. We've known about it for, for at least 500 years. When the Portuguese first came past the Cape of Good Hope on their way to India, they already wrote about these ancient ruins in their journals. And so we've known about these ancient ruins here. We've known about the fact that the, the African tribes that lived here um, told the Portuguese you know, sailors that they didn't, build these structures, they just occupy them and they didn't know who built them. So already there's, there's a deeper mystery there. And yet our archaeologists and our historians ignore those facts. So when I, when I stumbled upon this, this incredible information in 2005, that completely blew my mind. And I started to look at the, at the, the number of ancient ruins that we have. 
And that's when things start to get really interesting because by 1891, a British archaeologist, Theodore Bent, who spent a lot of about two years in South Africa, Botswana and Zimbabwe in those days, he studied, he was also the first guy to truly explore Great Zimbabwe and find the, the Zimbabwe birds and many of the important artifacts. He himself claimed that there is a, a gold mining or layers of evidence of a gold mining civilization at Great Zimbabwe that can be that he can trace back at least 2,000 years. But this is in his book that he published in, 18, in the late 1800s. So, and all this information is completely ignored. So this, you know, we've had this information, but you've got to go and find it in its original source that is now more than 100 years old. And slowly but surely, unless we go pull it out and revisit it and bring it back into our current consciousness and then deal with it and not just discard it, um, that information would have just been, been lost. So Theodore Bent traveled on horseback and horse wagon through Southern Africa. And in those days, he, he made sketches and he wrote about these ancient ruins, these stone circle structures that I've that I've sort of explored uh, to, to a much greater extent. And in, the, in those days, he already estimated that there were about 4,000 of these ruins scattered throughout South Africa, 4,000. So I thought, and keep in mind, I discovered this um, in some of the writing, probably already early in my, from when I was 19 through my 30s, but it, the penny really dropped for me when I was writing Slave Species of God in 2004, 2005, uh, when I was really delving into that research, because then I found the research papers on this, and there wasn't much information other than the books from 100 years ago, and then from the 60s and 70s, but there was not much information in there. Very few visuals, very few photographs of what they were referring to, and they weren't quality. Then by 1976, Roger Summers published a, a a nice detailed book about the Portuguese and their journey and a lot of a few critical points in those in that book. Um, and he then uh, estimates about 20,000 of the ruins in Southern Africa, 20,000 of these stone circles. So that blew my mind. I thought 20,000, that's that's a lot of ruins. You know, that's that's like living in the land of Indiana Jones. So I got very excited. And then shortly after I released my, my sort of first book that became, you know, quite a, a hot seller on Amazon at the, at the time. Uh, I met a guy called Jan Heiner who, who showed me the first aerial photographs of these stone circle ruins. And that, I mean, you can just imagine, I've never seen anything like this. No one in the world had seen those photographs before. And here I am privy to seeing these aerial photographs that Johan had been taken for at least 15 years prior to that. He was sharing that with all the archaeologists, all the academia, all the universities, all the historians in South Africa. No one was interested. They were all just bobbing it off. Oh, these, we know about these. Yeah, we studied them. We know them well. It's that kind of arrogant, dismissive attitude that unfortunately permeates the halls of academia, which is so sad. Uh, but that's the reality that we face. Uh, and I face it every day, all the time dealing with academia. And it seems like that's um, amplified through the last 12 months through science, so to speak, in, oh. in, the, in the medical realm. Oh, boy. But we, we, went, we don't have to get into that for this podcast no, if you don't want to. No. But uh, keep taking us on this journey of discovery, please, Michael. Well, you, you know, it's just really an entree into how little we really know. I'm just trying to lay the foundation for people, how little we know about 
the true history of our world, the true the true past of the 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 creatures, the species, the plants, the animals, humanity, humanoids, giants, all the weird stuff that you read about in mythology, read about in the Bible, read about in fantastic books, and and we think of them as these fairy tales, these stories, and then suddenly you are faced head on with the physical evidence of these civilizations, not just a fairy tale or some mythology story you face with the physical evidence. And it really takes a time for you to come to terms with what it is that you're looking at, because at first you, it's just too overwhelming. You can't believe, first of all, you can't compute what you discovered. You can't make sense of it. And then slowly but surely it starts to filter through and you start to realize the vastness and the, the importance and the magnitude of what it is that you've stumbled upon. And for some reason, it was me that stumbled upon this. And I just feel incredibly humble and grateful that, that I'm the guy that found this and discovered this because I had all the different background training, knowledge, and information to be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together and to decode what it's all about, what it means. And this is why I now understand why the archaeologists and the historians and the geologists never could compute and figure out and put the pieces of the puzzle together about the advanced uh, state of mind, advanced technology, and this incredible, unimaginable accomplishment of this vanished civilization here in Southern Africa, what they did and what they achieved. So, because the reason I say that, because generally we go through life and we get trained in one thing. We become, you know, we become a, an archaeologist or a historian and et cetera. And the academic system that we have literally boxes us in and we become experts in a very narrow field of information. And very few people today, academics or educated people, are are as wise as the, the the ancient Greek philosophers were. If you look at, for example, those people, they were so their knowledge was so broad and so wide. They could talk about everything and anything. They knew about the cosmos. They knew about atoms. They knew about plants. They knew about healing. That has we, we've lost that. As a fellow that studied cooking for a period of time, and and was in, I love that craft or art form of serving others food. Yes but I've been identified as a chef because that was one of the hats that I wore. Now people only expect me ever to talk about food, but never about the power of food as a form of nutrition. But I exactly. the media and my detractors and even people that <laughs> do like me, they say, stay in your lane. All you should talk about is sharing recipes. I'm like, but I'm, yeah. but I'm a human being. Like, yeah, I'm so much more than just one thing that I've learned and, and applied in my life. I don't cook 24 hours a day anymore. I might cook for half an hour a day, but the rest of the day I'm researching, studying, learning, applying, becoming a beginner, becoming an expert in all of these things. And, and I love what you're saying here because I do believe the human experience is to experience trial and error and student and teacher at the same time yeah and you know you as a chef you appreciate the power of food you know pharmacia the word pharmacy comes from the word farm from growing food pharmacia let food be thy medicine if we grow and and 
and plant and grow food the way it should be in its natural form, natural state. We get health and healing and cures from the food and the plants and the herbs we eat. Uh, and, and, you know, we have forgotten that. Keep in mind that the pharmaceutics industry is built on the knowledge of traditional healers and herbal medicine. What they've done is in, a long time ago, they realized that all the cures come from the plants. So they started to study the, the curative and healing elements of the plants. And then they ex, what, when, once they discovered it, they then extract the active ingredients, extract the, the molecules or recreate it in the lab. And they put it in a bottle and they sell it to us. Instead of teaching people how to grow the plants that actually have the natural ingredients and the molecules in them. So when we eat those plants as food, we cure and heal ourselves. So in there is already, you know, th there's a vast body of knowledge and information that you as a chef can share. What I'm fascinated about, and I think you're about to get into this down the track in our conversation, is not only do we have the plant world that we can use as tools for long-term sustainable health as well as improving our lives, but we have minerals, we have crystals, we have all these other natural resources yeah. including the planets, including the sun, including everything at our, at our, hmm, it's nearly like we're, we're going on a treasure hunt here. You know, we've got everything to discover. And I feel like that's also part of our human experience is to, it's, it's, it's this pioneering. It's the adventuring adventurous spirit that you have. And so many people, we, we all have this in us. We want to be pioneers. We want to be adventurers. We want to be these explorers of either our consciousness or of our natural world and, and everything in between that and even in other realms. And I think I'm going to open up <laughs> a can of worms here for you to continue this conversation. Oh, I love that can of worms. Uh, and the reason I love that can of worms is because my research and my different areas of activity. Keep in mind that I come from the from. Uh, I spent five years at, at Wits University Medical School in, in Johannesburg. I studied pharmaceutics, so I have a background in organic chemistry, inorganic chemistry, physics, um, anatomy, physiology, uh, healing that, that mainstream medical school teaches us. Right, so. I know that that's my background. So I understand how molecular structures work, how anatomy works, the electromagnetic bonds between everything in our bodies, how the cells work, how the organs work, all that. So when I started to discover all this other stuff, all that training comes back and then you, you start going back towards what, to what you learned at university and you realize how it's some, some places it, it's beneficial and other places you realize how, how they actually send you down the, the wrong path. But the most important thing that you learn from that university education is how narrow-minded, how focused and compartmentalized it is, how it separates our knowledge base from all the other areas of information that should be connected to it. Because the world and nature around us, including us, we're part of nature. Everything is connected. Things don't compartmentalize themselves in nature uh, you know, it, it's just everything is interconnected. And and through the the, the exploration and, and research of ancient civilizations, and especially what I discovered here, once I discovered what it is these guys did, the technology they used and the knowledge they had of sound resonance and frequency, that makes you realize that they knew exactly, they were masters of manipulating the laws of nature. They knew exactly how to use 
sound resonance and frequency for everything, including building, levitation, laser beam technology, laser beam technology that we've only rediscovered in quite recent times. And all of this is lying around us. And it's, I've got lots of the evidence in my museum and so forth. So this is... I attended a spiritual workshop that went for a year. Basically, it was a weekend workshop over a year when I was about 25 years ago. Excuse me. Excuse my dog. She's barking at a wasp flying around. But it re- you'll, you'll hear my dog. You'll probably hear my dogs barking sooner or later too. So it's it, it adds a nice natural element. Well, I love it because she's. It's right when I'm about to talk about. One of the teachers there said the future of medicine and the future of healing will be to do with sound and light, and energy and frequency and vibration. Simple as that. Yes. Once we can wrap our heads yeah. around that, that that is everything that we need and to study and to experience then the world will open for us and that's why i'm so excited about what you where you're about to go because that's where i've been watching these amazing researchers and scientists and explorers like yourself bringing this ancient information to light and it feels like all the pieces are start, are coming together for for us to be able to utilize in a respectful manner yeah it's it's exactly what it comes down to and you know we we've maybe jumped a little bit ahead of ourselves in this conversation but ultimately everything in creation uh the seen and the unseen uh is uh, subsequent to the primordial source code of call it consciousness call it the holy spirit call it many different names source code of creation, God, whatever, is the the vibrational resonance of creation. And this is why it's so important when you read, for example, the Bible and other other creation stories, uh, the the original people of Australia creation story is is resonant with that as well. The, the, The Hindu and the Buddhist creation story. Most ancient civilizations, creation story is all about the creator bringing in the, the creation of the universe through vibration and frequency and, and speech. And like the Bible says, God said, let there be light. Before there was anything else, the only thing that we seem to have had out there was water. That's a whole other story. We can come back to this if we run out of things to discuss. But, you know, it said the spirit of God moved over the waters and God said, let there be light. So it's the sound of the creator, resonance of creation that creates light. And, and what I find fascinating is when you talk to academics and scientists and physicists and they get all technical about this stuff. And, uh, you know, I've also become a bit of an expert on quantum mechanics and quantum physics because of, of what I've learned and experienced. And I find it fascinating how little the guys in quantum mechanics and quantum physics actually know about the subject that they study. Uh, and I'm digressing again. I just had a quantum physicist in my museum two days ago sharing this information with them, and I could see that they knew nothing about quantum physics and quantum mechanics, and yet they are, they are a, a master's degree student in quantum mechanics. It's unbelievable. But the, all about creation, coming back to that, that the ancient civilizations and the texts, the ancient texts tell us about this thing called consciousness and the source code of creation of everything in the universe around us is sound resonance and frequency. It is spectacular. And that's the secret to everything. And that's 
miraculously, what I discovered when I discovered the vast number of ancient ruins here. So I'm going to jump to, you know, to, the, uh, to the pinnacle of this, of this discovery is that I realized that there were more than 10 million of these structures in South Africa, not 4,000 or 20,000. By the time I started counting and finished counting them in 2008, I counted more than 10 million of these ancient stone circle ruins. Now, you can just imagine what happened to me at that moment in time. That's everything you thought you knew about the history of Southern Africa flies out the window because there is no time in human history that there were any amount of enough people here to have built those structures. What we have and what caused huge amount of confusion is many of the African tribes that came down here from North and East Africa uh, about 1,000, 1,500 years ago, um, many of those tribes inhabited and some of them arrived as recently as 600 and 500 years ago, um, about the same time that the Dutch came around the Cape of Good Hope. At the time, we had a lot of Bushmen here. The Bushmen covered this part of the world the, the way that the, the Ab Aboriginal, the original people of Australia were covering that part of the world. But for, for hundreds of thousands of years, we've had the Bushmen or the Khoisan people that covered Southern Africa uh, all the way up to the equator and, and beyond but, but predominantly down here. So they were here for a long, long time. But the stone circles have already been here for hundreds of thousands of years. And that is the confusing situation that happens when the African tribes arrived here, they started to inhabit some of these stone structures as one would. People reuse and reutilize existing structures the way we do today. So when they arrived, they just converted these stone circles and these clusters of stone circles, because they all clustered together uh, to whatever size they needed for their tribe, and then it would live there and use it for as long as they needed. And that creates a confusion because many of the stone circular structures have got doors and entrances that were made into them. The walls have been built up higher than they originally were and so forth. And there, that's where our historians reach the incorrect conclusion because they always ascribe it to a certain tribe that lived in that area. So they immediately assume that that tribe built those structures for themselves, but they miss the aerial view because they haven't studied it. They haven't studied the original structures, which don't have any doors and entrances. The original structures are all completely closed. They were not built as dwellings for people or animals. They were built to perform a very different task. And that purpose was to be an energy generating device, an energy generating machine, just like the pyramids, just like the temples in Egypt that are giant circuit boards, just like Borobudur, just like Sacsayhuaman. These are not hilltop dwellings or temples or castles. These are all machines, energy generating machines. And we know this because I've started to measure in 2010 for the first time we measured very powerful sound frequencies coming out of the stone circle walls. And those sound frequencies then turn into electromagnetic fields that we measured there. Some of these stone circles, uh, including Adam's calendar, which by, by the way, is like the flagship of these stone circles. I really hope you enjoyed the first half of this podcast. If you'd like to listen to the rest, please visit evolvenetwork.tv. That's evolvenetwork.tv. We'll see you there. The information views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions 
and nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.